Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Ben Beichler of Creambrook Farm in Middlebrook, Virginia. He and his wife, Kristen, have a herd share business model where they market raw milk from their Jersey cows directly to consumers. The business model they've got fascinates me and I can't wait to learn more. So Ben, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Awesome. Thanks for letting me be on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind just getting started with uh, your history, do you have a, do you have a history in agriculture, your family, or did you oh. kind of come around another way? Um, so I grew up in Northern Maryland, used to be a big agricultural area during the nineties. When I was a kid, it was getting paved over pretty rapidly. There's still some farming in the area, but nothing like what it was, you know, seven years ago. I grew up in a family that a lot of tradesmen, but no farmers. Um, both my grandparents had hobby farms but it was more for the tax write-off and like beating themselves than any kind of serious business proposition. I had always loved farming as a little kid. We had a few acres that my parents leased out to a local dairy farm. So we used to watch the tractors come in, bale hay, top corn. I just was enthused with the whole process. Mm -hmm. Um, My grandfather had a um, passion for antique tractors. So he was always restoring old tractors. He took us when we were little boys to uh, tractor shows. That was really fun. So I I just, farming bug bit me like crazy. Like it's all I ever wanted to be when I was a kid, but we had no agricultural background other than like 4-H and stuff like that. And, and, you know, when I said, as I was growing up, I was like, you know, I want to be a farmer and this kind of stuff. And my my dad was like, "Um, the only way you're becoming a farmer is if you marry it or you inherit it. And I kind of hate to tell you, but I wouldn't marry for it. And you're definitely not inheriting it. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that, that dream kind of got squashed. So, you know, I went through home school or high school, uh, graduated, went to college at Towson University north of Baltimore. I uh, was kind of aimlessly wandering my way through courses. I hadn't declared a major, had good grades, but I just, nothing I was doing, like, struck me as like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And there, there was some family pressure to, you know, go through college and graduate. And so I was kind of trying to appease that. Yeah. And um, got about three semesters in. And was running out of money. And this is 2004, five, that time period, five, six. Uh, I forget exactly which years. But um, it got to the point where I was going to take some student loans if I want to keep doing college. And I was like, I'm out to get this. <laughs> and at that, uh, while I was kind of in that moment of indecision, I was trying to decide what I was going to do, had discovered a couple of Joel Salison articles. Uh, it was the first time I saw a way for like a young person to get into agriculture. It's kind of this, you know, um, build your own, you know, um, very blue collar, you know, from the bottom up type of farming system. I was like, oh, you know, I could do this. So I applied to the apprenticeship, um, got in, and I think I got accepted the middle of January for the apprenticeship. And like a week later, I was supposed to start my next semester of college courses. And as soon as I got the acceptance call from Polyface, I got online and canceled all my spring classes cold turkey, told my parents, Hey, I'm quitting college. I'm moving to Virginia in the fall. We start farming. I'm going back to my construction job, which I was working during the off school season. Sure. Uh, save up money for moving to Virginia. And dad was kind of like, cool, whatever. My mom was 
had a bad nuclear meltdown. Because <laughs> uh, like, this is not the plan. This is not what you're supposed to be doing with your life. I think that's probably a similar reaction to what would have happened had I gone that route in my family too. So I can understand. <laughs> so, you know, went, um, went back to my construction job, saved up my money. Time came to move the polyface. I basically left with my car and a couple grand and whatever I could pack into it. And that was, that was moving to Virginia and um, did the apprenticeship there for a year. Um, it was kind of a rough start. I, I was really green. Like I didn't know up from down. I mean, we'd only done a little bit of 4-H growing up. So when it came to animals, I was pretty inexperienced. Um, polyface at that time, this is 2000, 2007, 2008. Uh, this is when the omnivores dilemma thing was massive for them. So they were getting a lot of publicity. Yeah. Things were crazy there as they were trying to kind of handle that plus the massive growth that came from them as a business. So, yeah, I was able to dip my toe in, uh, was really excited, you know, about what I was learning. And then there wasn't really any opportunities, excuse me, for me to go back home and farm up there. And I wasn't really interested in going back to Maryland anyway. I never really fit in up there with the, the kind of more urban culture they had. So there was an opportunity for me to become a mid-level manager of Polyface running one of the rental farms, did that for a year and a quarter roughly, and then basically began a long stream of bouncing around working for multiple different farms. Along that course, uh, my wife, Kristen, went to be an intern at Polyface in 2010. Uh, she was there. I was kind of in and out, still doing some work with Polyface, but also getting ready to launch my own business at that point in time. Um, so we started dating, we only dated for five months, got engaged. I, I kind of had this, uh, history of, of doing things really quickly and, and people being rather, uh, shocked or upset with the, how quickly the timeline goes, but we only <laughs> dated for five months, got engaged much to her parents' surprise. I they gave us their blessing, but they were kind of like, Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and we were married, I think four months later. Wow. So, um, we moved into, uh, a farm that was willing to rent us the old farmhouse. It was a secondary farmhouse. It was in really rough shape and a couple acres for us to kind of get started with our own thing. And mm -hmm. we started milking a few cows. Um, that was when dairy kind of became our essential focus as a business. I mean, I'd always had a passion for dairy. When I went to Polyface, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do as far as like enterprises. I discovered about two weeks into the apprenticeship that chickens was not going to be my long-term future. <laughs> Um, it was like, I hated chickens, but it was just one of those things where it was like, yeah, you know, this is good. I can see the finance, uh, the reason for doing it financially and stuff like that, but it wasn't like my passion. Sure. They had an apprentice there who had a family cow, uh, that I got the milk a couple times. And I always joke with people like, beware of family cows. They're a gateway drug. You know, if you get one mm -hmm. or, you know, you'll have a whole, whole herd of them. Yeah. <laughs> so I got the milk his cow a few times. And then when I got independent enough. I, I bought my own family cow and milked her. So, you know, I started reading Newman Turner's books and stuff like that. And, and dairy really just kind of like sunk in as like, that was the direction I wanted to go. And now I was still doing a lot of chicken and beef and turkeys and other things for quite a while beyond that. But I knew that like dairy was going to be the long-term direction. That's kind of where we, we shifted our focus. So we got married uh, January, 2012 for two years. We kind of worked on that subleased farm, trying to get our own operation going. And it was a good experience. We didn't make a whole lot of money, but you know, the Alan Jackson song, Living on Love, that pretty much described us. I mean, if her dad knew how little money I had when we got married, he would have totally <laughs> put the plug on that thing. 
Uh, but that was the one question he didn't ask and I didn't volunteer the information. So, um, you know, <laughs> we, we got by. so we did that for two years. And then um, Kristen's parents had a dairy that they leased the land and they were milking their own cows on. Uh, after our two years at our first place, we went out there for a year, um, milked with them and then went to Pennsylvania for two years and milked for two certified organic dairies that were in the Chambersburg, Pennsylvania area where the opportunity came for us to, to come here by this place and set up our own permanent operation. Um, for us, we first got married. We were just trying to like make it work. We were just trying to like make money. You know, Polyface has this culture that they pass on to their apprentices of being very scrappy and to degree almost being a little bit low risk. Like they, they don't like big risks. So you know, that was the philosophy I kind of quote unquote grew up in. And we continued that very low risk very scrappy philosophy. But the, after several years of that, Chris and I were sitting down one night together, pretty frustrated with where we were with our career. You know, at that point I had been farming from us five years, didn't really have a whole lot to show for it. We bounced around a lot. Um, we weren't any closer than we were when we started having our own operation and we were just really frustrated. Um, our current experience with where we were working at that point in time wasn't going terribly well. And kind of almost as a joke, I said, you know, what if we set a goal of buying our own farm before I turned 30? You're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So that kind of became jokingly almost like our goal, but it was the best thing that ever happened to us because it gave us a focus that we didn't have before when we were making our decisions. Before it was just, we're just trying to survive. We're trying to find a good opportunity. We're trying to not get in the debt. We're trying to do, you know, take a low yeah. risk route here to grow our business model. And when we made that decision and we were like, we're going to buy our own farm. First, once again, everybody around us was kind of like, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Crazy. But we, it gave us a focus we didn't have before. And, and we started looking like, okay, what do we need to know? What do we need to do if we want to buy our own farm? So initially we started looking pretty wide and far at what our options were. Cause like we didn't have, I'm from Maryland. She was from Virginia. We didn't have like any roots really set that deep. Like in our minds, we could go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so we basically got online and just started looking at, at different markets and opportunities all over the country and pretty much settled on Wisconsin or Missouri as like our two target areas. Yeah. Um, and uh, we went to Wisconsin. There was a dairy up there we really, really liked and would have bought if things had fallen the right way for us, but things didn't work out on the financial end at that point in time. Went to Missouri. Um, Missouri scared us off a little bit because it was the area we were looking at, South Central Missouri. This is 2015, 16. Um, at that point in time, I had always heard about the brain drain, but I never saw it up close until we went to that part of Missouri. And it was like, holy mackerel, like everybody's 75, everything is decrepit. Yeah. You know, it was like, for us, it felt like, okay, we can move here. Land's cheap, which is great, but we might be at the end of the, the dying chain or it was one of the place was kind of in a, a, in a way where you could see it was just going to continue to degrade or there was going to be new energy coming in, but it was hard to like figure which way it was going to go. Sure. Okay. And it was ultimately 17 hours away from family and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a good exercise for us, but we, we didn't, we didn't go for it. Um, and then we looked at the farm that we ended up with here in Virginia. It's about eight minutes away from polyface. We kind of 
looked at this farm as like, well, let's get a comp mm-hmm. for if we were going to be closer to the family, if we we're going to stay on the East Coast. It was the most expensive farm. We didn't take it that seriously, but it was like, let's just look at it, kind of see what opportunities there are. And um, after looking at Wisconsin, Missouri, we kind of came back to Virginia. And the thing that Virginia had that Wisconsin, Missouri did not have was the option of a direct marketing market should our commodity, because our plan was to be in commodity agriculture, should our commodity model run in the problems or not work? Mm-hmm. So the farm here was considerably more expensive than, than what the other farms were. We were like, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's put, you know, let's look at this pretty seriously. So um, jumping around here a little bit, when I was working for one of the dairies up in Pennsylvania, they had hired um, Ted LeBeau, who is the uh, owner and chief consultant for Kitchen Table Consultants, mm-hmm. to help them because they were having some financial stuff they were working through. And I, I got to rub shoulders with Ted because I was the farm manager at that point in time. You know, Ted would ask different financial things. And even though I wasn't on the, like, the fi- finance end, I was on the farm end, I still sat in on a lot of the meetings and was like providing context to different cost analysis and stuff like that. And sitting with Ted, I realized, like, you know, wow. I always consider myself to be good with money because I came from a very frugal family background and I've always been a penny pincher. So I consequently consider myself good with money because I didn't have a spending problem. But <laughs> sure. after sitting down with Ted and seeing how they're looking at finances and stuff like that, I was like, oh, wow, like I actually have a lot to learn. Like mm-hmm. I know very little about, you know, a lot of this, um, a lot of this bigger macro financial stuff. So when I left that position, um, I called Ted. I said, Hey, Ted, um, I, I'm realizing that like, you know, my goal is to buy a farm. He knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, but I realized that like, I don't know a lot about this financial stuff. It's a weak point for me. I really need some help. Is there any possibility that you'd be interested in mentoring me? And Ted, just for context, like he's like a $300 an hour consultant. Like he's on that like lawyer sphere Mm -hmm. Um, and he's worth every dollar. I've seen him work some financial miracles with multiple different operations. Sure. But, you know, I didn't have a lot of money in my name and all this stuff. So I was kind of like on a wing and a prayer asking like, hey, would you would you do this? And I was surprised that he's like, absolutely. Yes. Like, let's do this. So we set a schedule. Um, I would call him once a week for like 15 minutes. And basically he just started giving me homework. Like, okay, you need a set of QuickBooks. You need to, you know, here's the spreadsheets you need to learn. I didn't even know how to use a spreadsheet. I mean, I was one of those classic back of the envelope mathematicians like most farmers are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I basically got an MBA agricultural crash course from Ted. Not saying that like I'm on the level of an MBA, but it was that level of finance. I mean, I learned banking terms. I learned, you know, how to make spreadsheets forward and backwards, how to run QuickBooks, all these things. So while we were looking at these farms and we were making these, you know, financial analysis, of these places, Ted was, was kind of looking over my shoulder and, 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 you know, mentoring us as we were going through these processes. And also I would take these spreadsheets and run them past any farmer who would bother to look at them. You pretty quickly figure out which ones knew their own numbers and which ones didn't. <laughs> Cause you're like, Oh, well, this thing's pretty in depth. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, you got advice from everybody. Good. So when we came to the point that we wanted to go after this farm, Ted made an introduction for us to kitchen or not kitchen table, um, Iroquois Valley farms, which is based out of Illinois. They do a lot of uh, investing in organic and regenerative style agriculture. You know, he made, he had some connections there basically, you know, put me in contact with them and said, Hey, you know, 
this is young family might be, you guys might be interested in, they got, you know, all the things that you're looking for. So we brought Iroquois Valley into the process of looking at uh, what we need to do to purchase this farm. Mm-hmm. That's a whole long story about how that played out, but long story short, we went through multiple processes with them to get their, their approval. Plus we had to get some approval of some other local banks. The Iroquois wasn't going to do the whole deal completely by themselves. So we had to bring in um, some local financing. Sure. And um, on May of 2017, we closed on uh, the farm portion of the farm. We, we bought kind of the main part of it and the Iroquois bought the other part of it. And we're in the process of, of buying them out. Okay. Um, but we bought the, the main part of the farm and they kind of bought the, the company land around it. And um, the funny thing was like, I don't remember if it was the day we signed for it or close to it, but like Chris and I were talking and that was May. My birthday was in August. That August I was turning 30 hmm. and it kind of hit us like, Oh, we actually did it. Like we yeah. bought the farm. For you. And, and we had said that earlier on, it kind of gave us a focus, but we kind of forgot about the 30 part. Like it wasn't something yeah. where we'd like sit there and talk all about the time. Like we got to do this before Ben turns 30. But it, <laughs> it was constantly all of a sudden, like we just set the goal and just start working to, towards it. And then all of a sudden when we accomplished the goal, we kind of took a step back and it was like, wow, that actually mm-hmm. happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah no, it, it was, it was, um, I, I look back on it still, I'm blown away and amazed. And like Chris and I are people of faith. Like we believe that like God has a plan and purpose mm-hmm. beyond us. And like, you know, he can't move mountains. And uh, this was a big mountain to get moved. Like mathematically, I, I look back and I was like, like we had no business getting involved in what we got involved in. But it was mm-hmm. one of those, you know, kind of knowing the right people at the right time and things falling mm-hmm. in place. And, you know, here we are. Um, and that's, that's got about where the honeymoon ended um was on closing day because <laughs> yeah. our our business plan was built around Kristen's parents had started a small uh micro dairy creamery our business plan was built around shipping milk to them for three years um while we transitioned to organic and then shipping milk organically to organic valley on the grass milk truck because we were super passionate about harvesting grass that's all I ate breathed was Harmson grass based dairy. The last dairy we worked at before we moved down here was a certified Harmson grass dairy. You know, coming from a beef background, I had seen Harmson grass work well with beef. So it just seemed like a logical step to take that to the next level with, with dairy. So you know, we were going to start off with Harmson grass product for my in-laws creamery and then make that transition to organic and ship milk for organic Valley. Having worked at Polyface and some other direct marketing operations, my wife and I had zero desire to get into direct marketing. Mm-hmm. We had seen the good and the bad of direct marketing. We had seen that like, yeah, it's a pile of money. It's also a pile of stress. You're managing a team, you're managing a business. Like there's a lot that goes into it. And throughout our travels and getting to meet Ted and other people, we'd seen that like people who have a sharp pencil and are smart and manage their business as well with a grass-based nature could be very successful in a commodity market, which, you know, was a little bit of a, of a mind twist for me. Cause like getting started at Polyface is like, well, the only way you can make money in agriculture is direct marketing. You know, there's, there's other people out there just crazy, just taking their cows to the stockyard. But as we travel around, got the rub on their shoulders and meet other people, we realized that wasn't necessarily true. Like there was a lot of really successful folks that had made money good and during good and bad times through a commodity market. So that was kind of our focus is like, 
you know, we're really passionate about farming and this is what really gets us exciting is the grazing and the cow management and, and you know, growing the soil and, and, you know, let's focus on that. And, you know, we also had a very young family. I mean, my oldest, when we closed on the farm was just barely three and Kristen gave birth to our second son, like three weeks before we moved from Pennsylvania to Virginia. I have, I have a thing for giving really bad timing on postpartum because it's been multiple times where she's given birth and something major happened afterwards. But yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm promising her on right now, we're expecting our fourth in August. And I'm promising her that it's going to be different this time. But uh, I think we both know from experience that it's probably uh, not. <laughs> uh, not realistic. Yeah. But anyway, huh. um, well, so... I'm just curious, even before we get into the marketing side, because I've already, I've been like keeping notes here of all the things and the questions and the tangents that I could go down here. And I've, I've got a couple questions already, even before we go down that route. And yeah. The first one is, you know, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Southeast Minnesota. And most of the people I talk to are in the American West, you know, the, the, uh, you know, not, not very many people I've talked to or, personally, I have no experience in the East. So what I, I guess I've heard a lot of, or thought a lot of is high population, you know, and you kind of a, a touched on that with the cost of land being so much higher than out here. And then also being, that was kind of the first place to being settled that the land may be more degraded. Maybe, maybe not. I'm curious, uh, in your area, you know, I mean, what's, what's contributing, talk about the land and the, the environment you're in as far as, you know, land quality and, you know, it's potential production and, and then, yeah. you know, how the people play into it of the East coast. Um, well, if God was going to create a place to grow grass, it's the mid Atlantic. Okay. I mean, we have the climate for growing grass. Mm-hmm. Um, I know everybody likes to talk about New Zealand and that's true. Like with what they can do with ryegrass and stuff is mind blowing, yeah. but we have the perfect climate for growing grass. You know, we can typically, start growing grass um middle of march if we have a decent spring and with proper grazing management we can definitely graze up to the first of january that's if we, with like green and like for a dairy quality feed you can oh um, no your, your stockpile started okay. to deteriorate after you get past thanksgiving but the thing is like we'll we'll be having frost and freezing and stuff like that but usually you know the january 1st we, we don't have a whole lot of snow Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can, you can, you can graze pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, January and February can be rough. It can get cold. I mean, we've seen zero multiple times here. We're, we're in the Shenandoah Valley, which everybody thinks of Virginia as being the South, but we're also around 2000 feet elevation. So, okay. you know, our, our winters can be a bit bearish at times. Mm-hmm. This past one was a doozy. So, so, you know, February, March, depending on snow cover and ice, and stockpile quality because stockpile will start degrading pretty rapidly once you get past January 1st. Um, we, we are part of the fescue belt. So we have a lot of Kentucky 31, sure. um, which is great for winter stockpile, but it's a real booger in July and August trying to figure out how to manage it properly. Now, obviously mm-hmm. pasture diversity, time of harvesting and stuff like that are ways you can work around it. Kentucky 31 is a real problem for dairy and I'll touch on that a little further in the conversation because it explains why we went a couple ways with some of our other decisions, mm-hmm. but climate wise, we can grow grass. I mean, where we live, we're surrounded by beef farms. Everybody around here has Angus. Um, people can crop. Uh, you can get 200 bushel corn in a, in a good year and stuff like that, but uh, we, can, we can't hold a candle to what the Midwest can do as far as 
um, crop production. I mean, as far as soil degradation, it, it's on a farm by farm basis. Um, I've seen some farms around here that are really amazing and awesome. And then there's some that are as bad as Joel described, you know, his farm when, when they got it or when mm. his parents got it there in the sixties. Sure. So it's, it's on varying scales, depending on how the farm is managed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been to the West as far as like, other than flying over it. So I can't really compare my soil to yours, but mm-hmm. we're growing grass. We're in a really good spot. Okay. Cool. Cool. And, and then kind of another question you, you had mentioned, I think the word you used was green. You were very green when you got to the uh, polyface farms and you had no experience in all of this. I mean, talk a little more about that learning process. You said it was a struggle early on whenever, I don't know. I mean, are most people oh, coming there with some, some experience? <laughs> well, this is, a, you know, this is a different time period. I mean, at this point, goodness, 2007 is what, 15 plus years now. I'm not extremely good math apply but you're right on um you know polyface at that point in time was was kind of desperate for labor so they were taking whoever would come i was willing to come they're pickier now i I doubt i would have gotten (laughs) today with the standards they have now but at that point in time they weren't they were a rising star popular you know popularity wise but they weren't at their zenith so i mean the cows really gave me a hard time. I, I knew absolutely nothing about cattle as far as flight zones or proper management. And you mm-hmm. know, I would just get nervous when I had any time to get around the cows and then the cows would get nervous and then Daniel would get all jacked up. And it was just kind of a, you know, real fun time. <laughs> so Daniel gave me a copy of, um, Bert Smith's, uh, hurting book. Okay. It's not in print anymore. I've tried to find other copies and I've been unsuccessful, but basically explain the whole concepts of flight zones, how to handle cattle, cattle psychology, et cetera. Sure. And that was a massive breakthrough for me. And then I would just go out in the evening on my spare time and just go out to the cow herd and just goof around mm-hmm. with how can I make a certain cow manipulate and move. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was huge because, I mean, a year later, I was managing one of the rental farms by myself and was moving like 400 head of beef cows a half a mile yeah. you know, from one place to the farm to the other with just using ball fences and four wheelers. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's stuff that, that anybody can learn. It's just once you have, you have to break that, mm-hmm. you have to change your psychology to understanding what a cow's psychology is, and then you can manipulate it to, to work the cattle properly. Um, and I just fell in love with cows, uh, really rough start, uh, initially. And then, you know, it's like anything with farming. There's so many things in farming that are, are the only way you learn it is through experience. Like you can read a book or you can watch a YouTube yeah. video, but you really got to go get your hands dirty or bloody mm-hmm. depending on what the job is. <laughs> sure. And, and, you know, butchering chickens took a little while for me to catch on. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the fastest learner. I'm one of those people like once I got it, it's like a steel vault, but I'm, I very rarely get anything on the first or even second go. So it just took a lot of repetition and time for me to kind of like, get uh understanding around it and, and probably after three or four months of being there i started feeling comfortable and that helped too like i was just green in multiple different ways so i was a little uptight and nervous and that mm-hmm. you know that kind of played into things and once i finally started relaxing and getting some confidence then it was, it was just you know the sky was the limit but it, it was it was a rough it was a rough start sure yeah and and so did you uh when you were learning all that and struggling were there any points where like, maybe this farming thing isn't all I thought it was going to be. And maybe I should just go back to school or something. Or was it, was well, it exciting and you enjoyed every moment kind of a thing? No, there was a moment where I remember sitting there being like, what am I doing? But my unfair advantage in not the best of ways was that 
the home situation I came out of was not good at all. It was really bad. So sure. going home was not an option. Mm-hmm. Like there was no going home. So it's like, figure this out or go join the army. <laughs> I wasn't going back to college, like the college yeah. thing. I was like, you know, forget this. And so, so I kind of, you know, it was, it was almost a blessing that I didn't have like a fallback. Like mm-hmm. it was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to, f- I have to figure this out. Like I have no other choice. Sure. Um, and, and once I started getting that confidence, starting having some success, then I found that love for farming that I always had had, but I kind of lost initially because I was like, holy crap, like, you know, what is going on around? Mm -hmm. Um, Then the the fire was, was lit and there was fuel on it and it was was no stopping it at that point in time. Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then you talked with Ted a little bit or about Ted and how he helped you maybe figure out some of the business things, but getting into dairy how did you learn? I mean, going from beef cows and chickens or what, you know, pigs and stuff uh, to, to managing a dairy, that's a big jump. That's a big shift. Talk about that learning process a bit. It's a massive jump. And I'm not saying that because I did it to like yeah. boost my ego. Like it's a, it was a, not, not horrific, but it was a massive jump. I mean, mm-hmm. when we first got married. We bought six dairy cows and we were doing a little raw milk business on the side. You we were subcontract raising chickens for polyface. Sure. And we're going to do things, harm percent grass, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we'll rotate them and do what we did with the beef cows. And, you know, and took them out there and dumped them on Kentucky 31. And they all about shriveled up and died within <laughs> about the first six months. Cause sure. like, I didn't know anything about feed quality or, you know, I just thought, well, you know, cows belong on grass and you rotate them and, you know, everything will be honky dory. And so that was a real wake up call to be like, oh, wow, like there's a lot more we have to learn about this. Um, and when we left that place and began kind of our, our traveling around, we worked for my in-laws dairy and then worked for the two dairies up in Pennsylvania. They were they were more or less conventionally minded uh, operationally. Uh, like, you know, I, I got the chopped corn silage and, you know, fed grain and, you know, gave antibiotics and, you know, it, it was, they were more like true blue dairies. The, the one was a free stall operation. So, you know, I learned how to push feed and bed stalls and all that stuff. And that was good because it kind of reinforced for me that I just absolutely love the pasture model. I just love grazing cows. Like it's one of my life passions, like the freestall barn about killed me out of just poor boredom and frustration because like all you did was push manure, push feed, push cows and hope you pushed enough milk to pay for it all. But looking back, it was providential because I learned so much about feed quality, balancing rations, cow health, breeding. I got, you know, kind of all those base dairy uh, things that I I didn't have, you know, how to milk cows, keep your somatic cell count down, deal with mastitis. You know, I learned all those things of those, those different operations. And so that gave me the base that when we came down here, looking back, I would still place myself as a novice, but I wasn't at least a complete greenhorn. <laughs> sure. So I, I kind of knew what I was looking for because the thing is, like I alluded to earlier, the problem with farming is so much of it is just experience. And, you know, you and I could go out into the field and we could look at a cow and you and I could see two completely different things just mm-hmm. based on our experience level, what we've done in the past, you know, she's limping. Okay. Which foot is she limping on? It took me a while to figure that one out. Yeah. Um, is she limping on the inside part of the hoof or the outside part of the hoof? You know, is it foot rod or is it, 
you know, an abscess or, you know, all, you know, you know, all these different things or, you know, why is that cow's rumen fill bigger than that one? You know, I used to always think like, oh man, all these cows look great. Look how full our rooms are. Well, they were all late lactation cows. So of course they look, you know, big and full. Yeah. 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 Freak out every spring when everybody would have and they look thin as a rail. Well, you know, they just, you know, it's just novice stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What you're looking at. Mm-hmm. so just putting in the hours to kind of like get experience then once again we would go to every farming meeting we could any farmer dairy farmer that kind of was heading in the direction that i wanted to go in that was willing to talk i'd pick their brains i mean even before i got on this podcast with you i was having a conversation with a guy that i'm, I'm learning from right now down in louisiana who's, mm-hmm. who's doing doing <laughs> what we're hoping to do here in a few years ourselves so sure so it's just the learning process never stops i mean I, I left polyface a little bit, maybe high on my horse because of polyface, Yeah, (laughs) you know, I learned the system and then I went out and got destroyed for a couple of years and and learned that like, okay, uh, back to the drawing board, you got always be learning, always have an open mind and always be willing to change. Like you Mm -hmm. can't, the worst thing you can do, I think as a young farmer is go out there and put a flag on the ground and be like, we're organic, 100% grass, no antibiotics, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but when you're a young guy just getting started and you take so many tools off the table, you're really at a major disadvantage. If you're, you know, if you're a competent farmer that has multiple years of experience, you know what you're doing, you're like go for it. But like, man, when you're a young guy getting started and you go out there and make that hard of a line in the sand, you really put yourself in a corner. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I appreciate you sharing that and stuff too, because it's, uh, I mean, all of this is, it's a learning curve for people, even like myself who had grown up on farms when, when I bought my first cows, I was learning something totally new, you know, from even running somebody else's to running your own, to switching entirely to a different enterprise and, you know, to dairy from something totally different. I mean, it's all a learning process and it's just nice to know, I guess other people struggle too. So <laughs> that's good, yeah. but it, um, Root cows are the easiest animal on the earth to take care of. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They literally are. Like, I know some people who are listening to this are like, that's not true. (laughs) Dip your toe in dairy for a year and you'll, you'll, you'll go running back to your brood cows. But yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to knock anybody's model Mm -hmm. or stuff like that. But I mean, it it is from like a performance standpoint, feed quality standpoint, management standpoint, brood cows are the bottom tier of, of grass management. Mm -hmm. You know, when you move up into stalkers then you you take it up a whole nother level when you go into grazing dairy you take it a whole nother level above that and mm-hmm. then you know the, the tip of the iceberg the pinnacle is a harmson grass dairy which will like i said we'll talk more about that a little further in the story about where we went with that but it's it's and your feed has your feed quality has to match those, those different levels mm-hmm. yeah well let's let's move into that part of the story then you were just kind of getting into you know, what you were doing with this, getting into the dairy and, and not wanting to market, but maybe realizing that there was some opportunity in it. Yeah. So, so we built our business plan that we sold the Iroquois Valley and our local banks built around, you were going to sell milk to my in-laws creamery for three years, certify organic and go into the organic market. Well, we closed May of 2017 and anybody who's listening, who has any kind of connection to the dairy industry knows that 2017 was a really bad time and dairy, organic or conventional. So my in-laws creamery had a whole bunch of problems uh, regulatory wise. Virginia didn't really give them a fair shake on some of the stuff they were trying to do. Um, the market was glutted with products. They were trying to crack in. They had some other issues that were going on. And it became apparent pretty quickly that like our, 
our grand plan that we had spent years fashioning and selling to the world pretty much lasted about, you know, a month. <laughs> and we, I started realizing like, uh Oh, like we're in trouble. This is not going to work. Now, everybody else on the outside looking in figure everything was still fine. But me looking at our numbers, looking at our stuff was like, okay, we, we've got, we've got some issues here. We're, we're on some cash problems if these, if these mm-hmm. problems aren't dealt with. So, um, one thing I should mention is, um, my in-laws had started their creamery. They had quit milking about a year before we got our place. And when we started milking, the price of cows was so poor. They hadn't sold any of their cows. They just sent them off to all their friends' farms. Okay. Um, so we got our place, their Jersey herd is about 50 cows moved here with us. Okay. Um, and that was our base herd that we, we used to kind of start this operation. So we realized like, okay, um, got some problems and we had, we had planned on doing a little herd share on the side just cause we knew it was some good money for those first three years, just kind of help make ends meet. We realized like we're going to need to make a model shift and we're off to do it pretty quickly because we weren't sure if the creamery was going to make it and organic Valley already told us like, Hey, you know, we're sorry, but we got more we can handle. We're not going to be there for you. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even bother to talk to any conventional markets because the, the price was just terrible. Yeah. So we realized like, okay, we need to pivot in a hurry. So uh, we built a Squarespace website for creamworkfarm.com. We um, kind of started putting a customer list together and started using the, the skills we learned along the way to direct marketing and then start our herd share and, and kind of was like, all right, we need to get this thing rolling. You know, started an Instagram account, started a Facebook page and just kind of started putting the word out there. And we'd had a herd share in this area for the first two years when we first started. So we had a little bit of a name recognition. It wasn't a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one of the big share, herd shares in the area towards Charlottesville had just gone out a few months before we started. So there, there was a few customers floating around, but I think like, the first time we sent milk out was like 32 gallons or something like that. It was, you know, nothing to save the farm with, but it was, you know, it was a start. Yeah. So we kind of struggled along for the first year and a half, slowly growing the herd share, trying to get the creamery to work. And about a year and a half after we closed closed on the farm, like the in-laws sat us down. They're like, look, this is just not going to work. And we're like, yes, we know. Um, we're going to shut it down. We're like, we completely agree. Because um, it was at that point, it was like, all right, you know, for the family, it's going to be best if we just, you know, wipe our hands clean of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so they closed it down. We went completely to that point, relying on the herd shares. I think we had like just under 200 families we were serving at that point in time. So, I mean, we were living, it was the ramen noodle plus. Well, that's quite uh, a few, isn't it? I mean, 200 families that you were, I mean, I guess I don't know it, how much you need. I, I don't know much about this business. So maybe walk me through kind of what the, what the cost and profitability, you know, per cow, how many families does a cow produce for? I mean, some of this, I, I don't know. To, to me, that sounds like a lot of families that you're producing for. Yeah. So context, context first, I guess I mentioned this earlier on the farm. We, we purchased 243 acres. So it's not a small farm. Yeah. Um, and we knew that if we're going to be harvesting grass dairy, it takes a lot of land to do harvesting grass dairy. So like sure. we need a big land base. Yeah. All the air farms I'd ever worked for were always overstocked and short on land. So you're like, well, let's just swallow the big pill to start off with, get a good land base to get started. That was another, thing, another reason we ended up wanting to go to this place. So it was extremely expensive. Um, so we had pretty heavy debt and rent payments to kind of make everything work with the Iroquois Valley and with the other operations. I mean, I think we needed back then like 10 grand a month just to like wow. keep the lights on. 
Sure. So 200 families back then, I think we were getting close to $9 a gallon. So 200 times nine is what, 1800 a week. So we were, we were, we were underwater. (laughs) Um, And, you know, fortunately, and this is where working with Ted was really instrumental for us was that we were able, he was able to coach us through on how to deal with the banks and talk to Iroquois as we were kind of making this transition. And one of the things he told us that was super helpful was 2017, 18 was a terrible time for the milk market. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, everybody stinks right now. Like the market's trash. All you have to do is suck less than everybody else. You don't have to be the best. You just have to suck less than everybody else. I was sure. like, okay, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I also, as soon as I knew we had a problem, I talked to our banks and our financiers and said, hey, we've got a problem. Here's what's going on. Here's what caused it. And here's what our plan is to make a change. We didn't go to them and be like, oh man, you know, that perfect plan we presented to you guys a year ago. Well, you know, the market's bad, blah, 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 blah. We didn't do that. We were like, hey, here's the plan. Here's what went wrong. Here was wrong with our assumptions. Here's where we're going moving forward. And like, they really appreciated that transparency. And they also appreciated that I didn't come asking for help. Now they did end up offering us some help. Okay. Cause they're like, they looked at their numbers and they're like, okay, we need like delay some payments and do some stuff to help you guys out. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I came to them and I was like, Hey, we got a problem. Uh, we need to make some changes and here's what we're doing to make those changes. Like we did it ourselves that they weren't forcing us to do it. Mm-hmm. Like they really appreciate it. Now they kept track on us and we had, you know, monthly, you know, we had, you know, quarterly calls and stuff like that just mm-hmm. to kind of show the progress. And, sure. but they could see pretty quickly that like, while we didn't have the numbers to support everything, like we were trending in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So we effectively sucked less than a lot of the other operations of that. So, um, but the, the beauty was when the in-laws creamery finally closed, we had kind of been trying to help them with their marketing and trying, we were kind of, you know, our time was split between trying to get our business going, plus trying to help their business. Yeah. And when they closed, all suddenly all of our time went on our business and it just blew up at that point. Sure. Um, and we were able to get up to 400 families, probably mid 2019, wow. um, something like that. And at, at that point, the, the financial pressure, we had raised our prices, done some other things. And by then we were, we were still tight, but it didn't feel like every time I paid bills, it was a, a, you know, a gut clenching yeah. contest. Mm-hmm. Um, so by 2019, we were starting to feel like, okay, I, you know, I think we're going to make it. This is going to work. Then COVID hit and farm just went crazy. I mean, demand went through the roof. Yeah. Um, and we shot up to, my wife would know all these numbers because this is more, she handles the, the customer sure. um, analytics. But long story short, uh, we grew pretty quickly. We went past a thousand families, I think in 2021, beginning wow. 2021. Um, and today we're serving about 1,250 families, um, at our, at our current, current market. And basically analytics wise, pretty much every family consumes a gallon. Now that's the average. We have some that yep. get like six gallons and a lot of people only get a half a gallon, but, per um, week, you're saying. per week. Yeah. But yeah, now we're serving about, you know, 1,250 families every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, with our milk and we've, we've capped it this year at that numbers. First time we've ever capped it. Okay. Um, we had some family things that popped up with my wife expecting and then I, I had an, a, uh, an injury this spring that slowed me down. So we, we've kind of capped it for this year and we're, we're making some assessments on our long-term future is, but you know, for us, it, it was like, you know, 
a lot of people I'll run into people in our area and you know, they, they think we're like some sort of marketing gurus because you know, our business is as big as it is. And you know, Oh man, what you guys do and what's your secret and blah, blah, blah. It's like, get a mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like motivation will make you uh, innovate. Um, but, but for us, like having worked with, um, polyface farms and one of the farms I ran in Pennsylvania was the family cow. They're the largest raw milk dairy on the East coast. So we learned a lot about raw milk marketing for them. But one of the things for us when it came to marketing was like customer experience is everything. So we've always put a very strong emphasis on how we treat our customers. If the emails, they get responses right back. If they call, they actually get a person. Mm-hmm. And we built our whole business around customer experience and customer efficiency, if you want to put it that way. We, sure. we, we automated as much stuff online with bill pay and signing up new customers and stuff like that. And we, we did social media for the first couple of years. And, you know, and we were, you know, everybody was talking about how social media was the thing to do. And, and, um, we did that for quite a while, but we, we sat down, we started looking at our analytics and realized that social media, while it was a lot of fun and games, it didn't actually drive a lot of customers to us. Mm-hmm. So we actually got off social media as a whole um, this past December. For one thing, it was eating up a ton of my wife's time. It was stressing her out. Um, plus having to consume all the other the, uh, fun things that comes along with social media. So for us, it's been primarily focusing on our website, our email newsletter. We, we send a newsletter out roughly every two weeks. But then the big thing is just, it's, it's all about word of mouth. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, whether it's digital word of mouth or it's actual word of mouth or whatever, like if you give people a exceptional product at a reasonable price with exceptional customer care, like you'll have a customer for a long, long time and they're going to tell all their friends about it. I mean, if, if you walked into your hardware store and they told you like, Hey, you know, you've been a great customer. We appreciate, you know, all the time you spent here. Here's a $50 coupon, go buy whatever you want. I mean, you'd go there every time. <laughs> sure. Yeah, And um, so we, we tried to build that kind of experience for our customers where, because sometimes buying local foods are really difficult thing because you mm-hmm. call the farm, nobody picks up or you email them and nobody emails you back or you go to the store and it's half stocked and, you know, the prices aren't clearly marked or the packaging um, yeah. is all, you know, disheveled and, mm-hmm. or, you know, something doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's not the most easy way to purchase food. And a lot of people have made exceptions the last couple of years because of COVID and stuff. They really wanted the food. So they're willing to deal with the inconvenience. But like mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like when you make the experience as easy as it possibly can for your customers, that's been our, our number one key secret, whatever you want to call it to, to growth has been, you know, exceptional quality. And then also transparency, like just being extremely open with your customers mm-hmm. uh, about what's going on. I mean, 95% of our customers get their milk delivered to like they've never seen us or the farm outside of like the website and pictures and emails and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but like making them feel connected, making them feel like they can trust us. We've been very open about our practices, what we do. And, you know, that, I guess that brings us to the, to the big thing I keep kind of hinting to, but like we realized in 2000 and I think it was 19 or 20, we really started having struggles with the dairy herd. You know, we've been hundred percent grass, that was what we built our whole reputation on. I mean, 100% mm-hmm. grass fed was on our label. It was on our mm-hmm. website. It's, you know, what I preached about. It was something I was super passionate about. But we kept running in these situations where the herd would do great for two or three months and it would just crash. Just something nutritionally would happen. We would hit a dry spell. Everything would go to seed heads. Feed quality would drop. Herd would, would just get in a bad spot. Or we had one year, 2018, where I think we got... 70 inches of rain where normally we get 40 
Okay. So like our, the energy in our grass was almost non-existent because yeah. <laughs> it was so wet. I mean, there was beef farms down the road from us that had cows die with their bellies full because the hay had no nutrients in it. That's how bad the, the yeah. feed quality was. Sure. So, um, that was crazy experience. So we were really running into issues where, where we just, the herd was just kind of all over the place performance wise and also nutrition, uh, nutrition wise. And I was getting super frustrated because we had tried multiple different things, multiple moves a day, um, supplementing higher quality forages along with our pasture. That was kind of the thing that everybody was saying, like, that's the thing we should do. And when we did, we did a lot of uh, supplemental feeding of baleage and stuff like that. But the problem with our farm is our farm is 240 acres, but only a third of it really can you make hay off of because this is a classic Shenandoah Valley farm. There's rocks and hills and valleys all over the place. And really that that roughly 70 acres is is the only place you can really take a mower and not be risking life and limb or the sure. or the machine. Okay. Um, so this thing of like making lots of supplemental hay and then feeding it during the grazing season was just putting us in the hole every winter because we'd come up short on forage and then we have to go buy feed. Mm -hmm. it, it was just kind of a really tough, a tough situation. And I was really kind of at a crossroads because I was super just disheartened and frustrated with, you know, how poorly the, the dairy was going. And the other thing too, it didn't help with this is, you know, when you direct market at the level that we direct market at, it's a ton of work. Mm -hmm. And it's almost the same as like running two farms. I mean, as far yeah. as like your time and the tension it takes, so we're constantly bouncing back and forth between trying to operate the dairy plus trying to, you know, grow this business as quickly as we can so that we remain financially uh, solvent. So, you know, and I was just always, I'm not, you know, if you ask my friends or people who know me close, like I'm not really a stressor. I don't really get stressed about stuff. I kind of tend to roll with the curves, but like I was, I was getting to the point where I was really starting to get worked up because mm -hmm. I was you know, very frustrated with all these, these kind of weird cow problems that keep popping up. So once again, one of those providential things, we were at a church picnic that fall and like the church we attend doesn't have a lot of farmers in it. Like it's, it's more of a, you know, a local town church, which is fine. I think it's good to yeah. have diversified um, friends because it gives you different <laughs> perspectives on life. Yeah. yeah. And it just so happened at that dinner that one of the families that was attending at that time, I was talking to her and she's like, oh yeah, my dad had a a grazing dairy. I'm sitting there thinking like, yeah, right. Grazing dairy. I've heard this a hundred times. You know, they, they open the door on the barn and the cows yeah. walk out with some dirt and then walk back. But she keeps talking a little bit and the bells started ringing. And I, I recognized, I was like, Oh, is, is your father Glenn Moyer? And she's like, yeah, yeah. It's Glenn. I was like, so yeah, he was here about five minutes ago. I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that like Glenn <laughs> Moyer was here. He's kind of one of the like chief granddads of, of dairy grazing on the East coast. Sure. Um, I'd heard a lot about him and never met him. I was like, Oh gosh, I can't believe he was here five minutes ago. And I missed him. Well, she called him. He came back. <laughs> I ended up just like burying my soul for about two hours. Cause I was just completely like, you know, it was a, a psychiatrist, yeah. a dairy farmer, psychiatrist visit. <laughs> Cause I was just so front. And you know, and he's, he's, I'm guessing close to seventies and he's been daring his whole life, but he's kind of sure. just smiling and shaking his head. Cause he had been through pretty much everything that, you know, I was describing that at that point he, he explained why they fed their cows in the parlor. They were feeding not necessarily a grain ration, kind of like a high fiber grain by grain byproduct ration. Okay. Uh, like wheat heads and, and soy hulls and high fiber stuff. Not, not just like straight corn. You know, there's a little bit of corn and barley in there, but it was mostly high fiber byproducts, but you know, that's why he developed a system that they used at their farm 
because the farm he originally got started at was also a Kentucky 31 farm and, and it had a lot of these similar issues. So, you know, went back with that and did some soul searching and we played around with it a little bit and realized like, wow, this actually does make a big difference in our the way our cows are performing and also in the way our cows were grazing. I never thought that like supplementing our cows would improve their grazing. Mm. I always, you know, thought that like, you know, supplementing them was going to take away from the grazing, sure. which is one of the reasons we stayed away from it. So, you know, we realized like, okay, this is a change we need to make. And we've built our whole marketing base around being a harmson grass fed. Like it's all blazed all over our, our pamphlets and everything. So you know, we took a month and figured about how we were going to craft the message and word it properly and what, you know, anticipate what questions people were going to ask and answer those questions before they have a chance to ask them. And, you know, we made a little video and posted it up and sent it to all of our customers and explained, hey, this is what's going on. And this is why we need to make the change. And here's what's looking at. And here's what's going to do to your quality of your milk. And here's, you know, I answer a lot of the questions I figured people were going to ask just right out of the gate, just get it out of the way. And people really appreciated that transparency. The fact that like, you know, they couldn't wrap their minds around what specific problems we were having, but they, they understood that like, we were having these issues because I, I went a few of the details of some of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, we lost, I think at that point we were close to a thousand, maybe 900 families. And I think we lost like six or seven families over it. They were died like they had to have arms and grass. And that's fine. I, I, I'm not trying to like disparage anybody. You know, that's that's their choice. But the fact that like we took time and explained this stuff in depth really meant a lot to our customers. And it would have been easy because a lot of our customers don't even come to the farm to just make a change and just not tell anybody. But the fact that we were transparent was a huge win for the customers. And also, you know, we could sleep good at night with ourselves about it. And, you know, we've been able to soldier forward through that, but it was, that was a massive, massive paradigm shift for me. Cause I, I was, you know, like I said, I was an apostle of a percent grass. Um, but basically we just had to come to the realization of like with the quality of grass we're growing on our farm with it being primarily Kentucky 31, Kentucky 31 is not a bad grass, but you know, let's say rye grass and uh, orchard grass are like, you know, the top echelon of your grasses, mm-hmm. you know, Kentucky 31 is really kind of more of a middle of the road from a feed quality perspective grass. It could be really, really high power feed in the spring, but it, it, once you get past spring, it, it's kind of, through the summer and even as a winter stockpile is more of a middle of the road quality grass than like a, you know, a super high quality orchard grass or rye grass or fustolium or, or something more hopped up. Sure. Um, newer grasses. And that thing too, with our farm, like we can't, we can't till our farm or much of it anyway, just because of erosion concerns mm-hmm. and like spraying, it wasn't an option either. So for us, it's more like we're going to have to make do with the perennial grasses that we have. Uh, we needed to adapt to our farm. We can't force our farm to be something that it's not. And we also have a responsibility to our cattle to not just run them into the ground for the sake of, of um, principle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, we, we made that change and it's, I've been very, very happy. We made that change and like, you can see it in our cows. I mean, our herd looks night and day different than it did um, a couple of years ago. And like, yeah, it shows up in production. Yeah, we're getting more production, but we've always been one of those people that like we we farm the way we should and the production will come. Like I don't get too wrapped around the axle on production. Mm-hmm. You know, if the cows are healthy, good condition, breeding properly, cycling properly, you know, clean the mastitis, like, you know, yes, we get lower production, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's, um, 
production isn't everything. It's, it's more about quality for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially in the margin business that you're in, you're not trying to get like hundred pounds, you know, 80 pounds of milk per cow, but I am curious, like, do you have any idea? Have you done some sort of analysis on what your expense, how much you have tied up in every gallon delivered, you know, or something to figure. Yeah. How does that, how does that compare to a commodity, you know, your cost of production or however you want to break that out does how does the adding the whole marketing enterprise play into it on a profitability standpoint? Yeah. So first how we set our pricing. So we have a very simple mathematical formula we use. So for every gallon of milk, we, we actually have our business set uh, broken up into two separate LLCs. So we have the farm, it has its own completely separate set of books. And then we have the marketing business, which has its own complete set of books. And this is really important because, and this is something Ted really, he like forced it on us from the beginning and I'm glad he did. Sure. Uh, you know, it's like two sets of books. Like I got plenty of other things to do, but it gives you a very clear cut idea of what your costs on the marketing mm-hmm. side is and also what your costs on, on the production side is. So our very, very, very simple formula is I want to see one third go to marketing, one third go to the farm and one third be profit. Now, a lot of that profit is going to go into debt payments and and stuff like that. Okay. So it's not like I'm, you know, for every $3 we make, I got a dollar in my pocket and I'm I'm walking loaded to the bank. It's it's not true. Like, yeah, because we want to buy, because we want to own the farm and willing to make pretty major sacrifices, like a, a big chunk of that profit third is going to um, basically acquiring the farm. And also when we got this place, we had pretty much no equipment. So we've had to go buy tractors, rake, disc binds, feed equipment. I mean, well, that's another question I had for you is, is all the investment infrastructure, both on the farm and in the processing side and the marketing side. But, uh, but I hear you. Yeah. 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 Uh, this farm didn't have a milking parlor. So we had to build a milking parlor. Mm-hmm. Um, the first milking parlor we built was a very cheap, flat six under a carport cost me 25 grand. <laughs> it was great. It worked well up till about 40 cows. And then that got really, really tight. And then this past year we invested a lot of money and built a swing 20 New Zealand style milking parlor that we can run about 150 cows through once it's up to full capacity. But that was the long-term investment parlor, um, which it hurts my hand every time I write the check for it, but milking in it it's a night and day different experience anybody can milk in it with our first setup i was the only one that could milk in it because it took a six foot male to run the thing mm-hmm. um with this you know my wife other friends can milk in it and then this spring when i got hurt and hurt my knee i was so happy i was in a pit parlor and not on a flat floor squatting every day because it, it would have never it would have yeah. never uh, flown <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I um so so yeah we had to build the parlor um, you know, the marketing business has actually been the cheapest thing because basically it's the cost of the website. Social media was free. Um, uh, when we were on it, email newsletters cost nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the marketing side of the business was actually the easiest thing, thing to build, but basically, so right now we, we charge right now our fewer to buy our milk be a, for a gallon of milk is $12. So we have roughly, cause I was just running the math on this the other day we're getting killed right now in distribution with the way diesel and, and everything is, but so the margins are off a little bit. So we're, we're a little bit over $4 a gallon into getting the milk from the bulk tank to the customer. So that's jug cap label, labor bottling mm-hmm. distribution, which is the most expensive part of that whole process. We have several girls that work for us part-time on the administrative end with like emails, 
billing, so forth and so forth. So all that's wrapped up pretty much in that cost. And then the farm pretty much falls into that second, third. It's, it's actually a little bit under that third right now. And then of course we have the other third for, for paying for, you know, growing the business and et cetera, et cetera. And the other thing too, is like, <clears throat> we took out a fair amount of you know debt getting started with this, but with the exception of our first year in business, we've, we haven't had an operating line. Like we don't have a line of credit or and we've had multiple lines offered to us, but I've always turned them down because I feel like for us, part of it's just understanding my personality. I'm the kind of person where if I see an opportunity, I'm just hot to get all over it. And I think that that could be a good thing. And sometimes it's not a good thing. So I think with us, paying cash for the opportunities that get presented to us. It makes us think a lot harder about those opportunities before we get into it. It'd be easy just to use an operating line to you know, invest in opportunities, but that could, could become a real problem real quick if those opportunities don't work out. So kind of as, as a protection against myself, we don't have an operating line and I, I refuse to get one. Um, so we are paying a lot of cash for a lot of our expansion stuff. We, we have had to get some loans on things like obviously building the milking parlor, but for the most part, we're paying as much cash as we can for expansion. And, we, and we've kind of used that as a barometer for like what we can and can't do. <clears throat> if there's you know big projects that are long-term, I'll have a problem borrowing money on those. But when it's like, oh man, you know, we could buy these cows and do X, Y, Z for the next year and a half. And we need to see that actually like pencil out. Um, and then Ted's, Ted and I still talk pretty much every week, you know, he's looking over my shoulder and, you know, giving advice. And at this point he's, he's more of a father mentor figure than, you know, being as heavily involved as he was at, at the beginning. But, but yeah, that's, that's roughly what we're looking at as far as our cost production. Now, if you want to compare it to conventional, conventional, everything's based on hundred weights and it's based on production cost production per hundred weight and all those things. And like, we're doing everything in gallons. I'd have to sit down and play with the math to do like uh, apples to apples comparison um, and honestly, our, our cost of operation is higher than it should be if we were on in a conventional market, but that's partly because we're making a specialty product with raw milk. We were putting some extra effort into things. Um, and the farm, the farm, as much as I hate to say this, the farm kind of exists to support the marketing business. You know, it really should be the other way. The marketing business should be there to support the farm. But in the, at the end of the day, when you get to this size and you're doing what you're doing, like the marketing business kind of is what's what's driving the engine so you, you have to do what you need to to keep the engine running so yeah i, I can't I, I wish i could give you an exact cost analysis but it, it would be off the top of my head would not be accurate yeah no that's all right i mean it's it's just interesting because i mean you talked about looking at wisconsin and you talked about missouri and and i don't know how your land price compares to here and there but you're you mentioned your big advantage is this customer base and clearly you've developed a massive you know, customer based 1250, you know, fam 1250 farms a, a week that you're providing milk for and stuff. That's an advantage that you probably couldn't have done in Missouri or Wisconsin. And so it's hard to, you know, compare to it. It's just totally, totally different business models and totally different areas. And so it's maybe not even a fair question, but it, it is fascinating what you've done and, and what you've built. No doubt. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Like, like I said, not, nothing like having a mortgage under your behind. The, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and actually I'm curious <laughs> because you mentioned that, uh, the, the Soliton model was, I think the term was scrappy and kind of risk averse or what was the yeah. low risk philosophy? How did that shift from getting, uh, 
yeah, kind of that mindset to a mortgage buying a farm and some of the highest priced land value areas <laughs> in the country and, and, uh, building a business that is almost nobody does. And <laughs> I mean, how, how they shift? I mean, honestly, it, it sounds like I'm, I'm being humorous, but I'm not, but I got angry. Yeah. Like we were working so hard and we weren't getting any traction. We're going anywhere. And I got pissed. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to do this, let's do it. You know, yeah. yeah. part of it too is like, maybe, maybe I have a little bit of a mindset too, where I don't feel like I belong mm. because I know statistically I'm the first full-time farmer in my family in five generations, as far as I can figure, like I have no business being a full-time farmer or being a farm owner. When you look at the statistics for people getting in and out of agriculture, I mean, I've joked about it and it's true. Farming is the American royalty. Like you're, you're born into it or you're bred into it or married or, or, you know, like my dad referenced, you know, so I think to a degree, I almost feel like I'm playing with house money. It's not true, but I almost had this sense of like, I don't belong. And since I don't belong, well, since I'm here, let's just like go crazy and do everything that we could possibly do since we're, since we're here. And like, granted, we have spreadsheets, we've got financial advisors, I have mentors, like there's a lot of people looking over my shoulder. It's not like I'm out here just ad hoc doing stuff. Like there's, there's all, some of my friends are like, you biker's crazy. You know, he'll do all this, this stuff. And I'm like, I always smile. Cause like, they don't know, they don't know all the hours and hours of conversations with people way smarter than me that went into things before we did it. Um, it might look crazy, might look risky, but at the end of the day, like we've made decisions with a lot of people. And we've also looked at like, okay, if this doesn't happen, what's, what's the backup plan? Like why we didn't go to Wisconsin, Missouri it was like, well, if the commodity market crashes, what are our options as a very exposed financially young family? Like, well, can't sell raw milk in Wisconsin and Missouri. There just wasn't anybody to sell to. So, you know, that was one of the reasons we ended up here was like, okay, this gives us, this gives us a backup option. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's, it's, and like, the Salatons thought we were crazy <laughs> when we bought this place. And I remember having a conversation with Joel, I think about three years after we bought it, he's like, I, I didn't think this was going to work. I didn't think this was a good idea. He never told me. I never asked. And yeah. he was like, I'm really impressed and proud of what you guys have pulled off. Yeah. I was like, thank you. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's got to feel good. <laughs> it's got to feel good. But it's also in a sense, you're like, man, you, you only get one life. Yeah. And you know, you can't take it with you when you die. So yeah. why it's not an interesting? Do- yeah. I mean, it's an interesting mindset. And I think, I don't know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts on real estate and, and like rental real estate. It's something I'm interested in anyway. And, and they talk a lot about, I mean, this challenge of getting started and for so many people, they're working their full-time jobs. They don't enjoy their work. They don't really have a plan. You know, they're going to work till 65. And for some reason they're scared to get started. And it's like, what's the worst case scenario? I mean, worst case scenario, it doesn't work out. Bank takes it back and you're back where you started. And that's kind of where you were sitting. Five years, you had been trying to build something all over the place. You were spinning your wheels and you didn't feel like you had gotten anywhere. So, you know, what's the difference? You you start, if it doesn't work out, you're right where you were before you started anyway. Well, I think some of it too is like, I keep joking about the mortgage, but it's true. Like for my whole experience in agriculture, there hasn't really been another option. Now, granted, I could leave farming today and I'm at a place now with what we've done as a business. I could go get multiple different jobs. It's not like I don't have options outside of agriculture, but like when we first got married, I was 24. She just turned 20. We didn't have hardly any money. 
And we had the conversation of like, okay, should Kristen go get a part-time job to get us a little cushion here? Um, or should she stay here on the farm? And we talked about it a lot. And basically we came to the decision like, Hey, you know, if you go get an off-farm job, the money's going to be great, but then we're going to get addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And when you have kids, cause we want to have kids, it's going to be really hard for us to wean us off that, that income. And the whole reason we got married is because we want to be together. We want to farm together. So let's just tough it out and like figure this out together. And the fact that she was there full time, even though it made absolutely no financial sense, it gave come, it allowed us to begin as a early newly married couple to start working together, which is a good thing if you're going to be business partners. And also her efforts were in the farm. So she was fully focused on it. So her time and attention went into it. And, you know, she was a team player, wasn't just like long for the ride. Um, like a lot of farm spouses kind of end up uh, being in. And um, we didn't have this like emergency fallback, like, well, we can always rely on Kristen's pay the pay off the mm-hmm. bills or something like that. So it, it induced this crappiness and a kind of a togetherness that like was really critical. And I tell lots of people who are getting started in this business and are getting married or something like that. It's like, don't let your wife work off the farm. Like <laughs> not, not this like degrading her because she's not, you know, yeah, able to uphold a professional job, but like for your business and for your marriage, like it's going to be the best thing. Like you guys work together, figure it out, you know, and, and, you know, we've, we've been in a position where like, you know, my family's not wealthy. So we can't really expect any support from them. So we, we haven't, we've been in a position where we haven't had a whole lot we could fall back on. So it's forced us to have to, to be, you know, scrappy or like take big risks or just mm-hmm. do things that most people want to do just because we simply didn't have another option. It wasn't because it was just like, we're crazy. It's just, mm-hmm. we didn't have another option. So it, it yeah. forced us to kind of, um, you know, make the hard decisions and, and take that next step forward. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. that. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I've even seen it <laughs> in my life here where, you know, we've, I, I work an off-farm job. My wife has a part-time job. We have our marketing enterprise and we've got the farm and it's like, you know, you're, you're serving multiple masters. You can't do anything. You can't put your focus and your mindset towards one thing to grow and build something when you're running all over the place, trying to take yeah. care of it all. So yeah. And add kids on top of that and your attention yeah. level. just <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. No, that's, that's great stuff. And I, I've got other questions that I feel like I could talk to you for another couple hours, but we're already over an hour here. And, and so I guess the last question I'll ask you before I have my last two little wrap up questions anyway, is for mm-hmm. folks that were in your position that wanted to farm and wanted to, you know, didn't come from money, didn't come from a farm, but wanted to do it or, or looking specifically at what you're doing and are interested, what kind of last thoughts or advice would you have for those folks? Um, wow. It's, it's a very rewarding life and path, but it is not easy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty hard. And I've been fortunate enough that I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of other successful business people outside of agriculture. And what I've found is you, you talk to farmers like farming so tough, the weather sucks and the market's terrible and employees <laughs> are awful, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And if you go outside of agriculture and you talk to people in other businesses, you kind of quickly realize that, like those problems are universal. So I feel like when people get into farming, because there's such this negative stigma around farming that when it does get tough, it becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's just like, you know, well, of course it sucks. It's farming. (laughs) (laughs) And the truth is like, if you went out and started a computer service business or or a tree, an arborist business, 
um, or had a logging company or ran a sawmill or welded or whatever it is. Like there's just, you know, it's part of the human experience is we live in a broken fallen world and like life sucks sometimes. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have that whether you're in farming or any other business. So I think, you know, boy, that's really encouraging the way I worded all that, but to the degree it it should be kind of encouraging because it's like, you know, this is just part of how it goes sometimes. And like, Mm -hmm. we got to put our boots on and we got to go out to that next set of chores or we got to pay that next bill. And, you know, you need to, you need to, you know, soldier on at the same point, you can't be a, a just crazy suicidal person. You gotta, you know, look at things too, and be like, if this isn't working, what needs to change? Like I have been guilty of not changing as quickly as I should have on some things. And then in other instances, I made the changes too quickly and didn't give them the time to come mature and see what was going to happen next. And that's a really tough balance to figure out. I I haven't mastered that at all, but you just have to have an open mind. And the thing is like the folks with gray hairs, they got them for a reason and you're getting them pretty quick yourself. If you don't go talk to them, Um, you know, and I know with, you know, with regenerative organic agriculture, there's a little bit of this feeling that like, it's so new, nobody's been doing it that long. Like, you know, I'm just going to go figure it out. But like, we're at a place now in those industries, like there's a lot of people with a lot of really good experiences, whether it's on the finance end, like Ted or, or other people in the grazing, you know, grazing genetics or whatever world, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of people. And those, those farmers, if you are, and this is the thing, this is the key to Ted and I's relationship. Cause he and I've talked about it. Cause it's been like, you know, why I've been the only young guy that's come up with Ted that he's done this with and has really had long-term success with. And, you know, we've talked about that. Like, why is that? Like, why, why can't we get more people who want to do that? And Ted's been honest. He's like, look, I tell you something and you listen, like I tell you, you need to do this. You actually go do it. And when you get people at Ted's level who can make like $300 an hour for their business, like their most precious thing is their time. So they got every time they can hear you trying to get their time. And like, if you're going to go talk to somebody who's higher up in the, in the agriculture or finance world, and you're going to ask them for their time, you better be willing and ready to do what they say, or at least try what they say. Because if they see that you are listening to them and that you're actually willing to try the stuff they're saying, like they will invest in you big time and it will pay off multiple ways, multiple ways. So, so the thing is like, you know, if you're, if you're going to talk to these people, don't just go talk to them looking for them to reassure your little special plan. Like I have gotten the place now where because of our experiences, like I, I, if I have some crazy idea and we've got some pretty crazy ones we're working on right now, <laughs> I'll go find people who don't think it's a good idea. And I really want to hear why they don't think it's a good idea. Cause chances are there's some truth in there and there's something that I'm, I'm missing. Cause I, I'm not, I'm not sure. finite. Like I have my limitations too. So, so just, yeah, you just, you have to tough out the time periods and like, you just have to always have an open mind, always be learning, always have your hands out, you know, look, look for people who might even disagree with you. I've learned a ton from conventional dairy farmers who have no interest in grazing or anything <laughs> yeah. like that, but I've learned some of the most valuable lessons from some of them. Sure. But if I had just written them off because wow, Oh, there you go. Capo farmers. Yeah. Then you know, I would have missed out on those opportunities to learn some really key things. So yeah, just, just keep an open mind, be disciplined, realize it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint and um, be, be just open, yeah, open-minded really <laughs> is the biggest thing. Yeah. 
Well, I'm curious, uh, one short question here anyway, are you interested in sharing some of your next steps or some of those things? Or are they kind of under, under the <laughs> lid for now? I'm curious. You got me intrigued. Uh, they're, they're under the lid because the, the people involved, it's not publicly known yet. So I, I sure. can't say a whole Fair lot enough. at this point in time, but no yeah, problem. we're looking at, we're looking at making some pretty major changes. So we'll see what happens. Cool. I look forward to hearing about it. It's, it's, uh, it's exciting to me. What I mean, clearly you are, you're, you're doing things unique and doing things different and you're building something great. So I'm, I like, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what that next thing is just learning, <laughs> learning through the, your process. So thanks for sharing that by the way. And, uh, the last two questions that I guess I've got, um, one is what recommendations would you have for somebody resource recommendations that can be book podcast, uh, uh you know, anything. That's a tough one. I get asked that one a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first starting off, I read a lot of Newman Turner stuff. His books are great. They're really outdated though, when it comes to treatments and data and stuff like that, you know, he was one of the very first guys. So it's, it's great to read his works because it gives you kind of like ground level thought process. But as far as like how they were doing things, like it's, it's very much like Wright brothers, you know, biplane with a, you know, bicycle <laughs> shop sure. type stuff. Yeah. Um, he was super inspirational. I also enjoyed a lot of George Henderson's books, The Farming Ladder, Farmer Progress. They don't necessarily deal with dairy, but they were great books for getting that farmer mindset uh, when I was getting started. Joel had all these books sitting in his private library, which we got to read as apprentices. That was kind of one of the bonuses. But I, it's really tough when it comes to like grass-based dairy and stuff like that today. There, there's just so many moving parts and so many new things that it, it's hard. There's no, not a lot of printed publications out there or even necessarily websites that I've found very good. It's, it's really, you kind of got to get on the road and you got to just start talking to people and start asking questions and get personal contact. Because it's, it's, not, it's not something that has gotten a whole lot of attention over the last couple of years. I mean, you talk about regenerative grazing, everybody wants to immediately talk about beef. You know, when you get on the dairy side, it's it's a, it's a lot more niche um, group. And for whatever reason, dairy and beef farmers don't tend to mingle as much as they probably should. Um, so, you <laughs> no know, time. You get a little bit. <laughs> well, no, it's not that, but it's just like, oh, there's beef farmers. I ain't really, you know. oh, yeah. Or, you know, there's dairy farmers. They're just, you know, cow monks. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it's, it's. Um, you just kind of got to put your boots on the ground and, and the biggest thing is just go out there and then learn, like you get jobs, even if it's not at the dairy, an ideal dairy, it's, but you'll learn things about cows. You need to learn that will translate over to when you get to your more ideal situation, whatever that is. Yeah. Cool. Um, last question. How can people find you reach out, learn more about what you're doing? Um, so we have our website, creamworkfarm.com. Um, obviously we have our email creamworkfarm at gmail.com. Um, those are pretty much our two main modes of communication. We're off social media, very happily off social media right now. We've been kind of lying a little bit low this year, um, with Kristen, you're ready to have the baby. And then, um, I'm recovering from my injury and some other things. So we, we, we haven't been making a big waves on the internet side of things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, those, those are kind of our two main modes. Awesome. Well, again, I really appreciate it. You got a cool story and I I know people are going to get some value out of it. So thanks for, thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing. Thanks for having me on. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. 
And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.